So as you get to know me, I know some of you guys are getting to know me over the course of the last couple months here, but uh, a lot of my close friends uh, know this about me, particularly my wife definitely knows this about me. Um, at times, I could be a bit of a hypochondriac. Like sometimes I get so worried about my health or anxious about if I'm healthy or not, especially when it comes to dealing with people close to me, uh, be it a friend or a family member that's going through some sort of health situation. I remember particularly this, like the hypochondriac inside of me came out when my dad uh, was going through heart surgery many years ago. And so he had a quadruple bypass. And I remember during the time that he was going through the surgery, all of a sudden, I started worrying about my own heart, right? I was wondering, like, okay, am I okay? Like, maybe I should go get checked up. Maybe I should go see the doctor about this. And one time, uh, this little quirk of mine really came to head, and I, I just realized the ridiculousness of it, was uh, there was a leader that I was working with uh, not too long ago. And he went to the doctor, and he came back, and he was telling the team that he was a little too stressed out. His blood pressure was a little high, and so he needed to make sure that he did some things to order to get that back on track, right? Because the doctor told him, due to some of the conditions that he was experiencing, particularly his high blood pressure, that uh, it was a silent killer. And if he didn't do something about it, it could lead to his demise. Well, as soon as he said silent killer, uh, I just zoned out and the hypochondriac inside of me came to life and my mind just went to when was the last time that I got my blood pressure checked and uh, I wonder what my blood pressure is. And uh, right away I went home and I went on Amazon and I like bought this thing that could check your blood pressure. And uh, the crazy thing is, I don't know if you've been on Amazon lately, but there are so many things out there nowadays that you can use to test your health, right? My sister, uh, who studied to be a nurse, uh, not too long ago, she told me that I needed to get this thing that you put on your finger uh, off of Amazon, and it tests your blood oxygen level. And my, my dad needed to test his blood oxygen level. So I got this thing that goes on your finger, and it tests your blood oxygen level. I, I don't know how accurate it is, Quinn, but anyways, there's so many devices out there when it comes to testing your health. In a similar way, when it comes to testing your faith, when it comes to testing as a follower of Jesus, your progression into Christ-likeness, one of the main tests out there isn't how much you read the Bible. It isn't how much you pray or how much you fast or how many times you go to church in a month. It isn't any of those things, even though those are good things, those are great things, those are things that help you become more like Jesus, all those, those are all great. The ultimate test when it comes to your progression into becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day is this, how you treat others. How you treat others. James, knowing this, gives us an explanation of why all those things I listed are good things. But he says in chapter 1, right before chapter 2 that Morgan read for us, in verse 22, he says, Do not merely listen to the word. He's talking about the word of God. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just listen to it. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks 
at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. James is like, hey, followers of Jesus, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself that you're progressing in Christ-likeness just because you are downloading all the right information, right? Our culture is obsessed with information, but here's the thing. The right information doesn't always lead to transformation. The right information doesn't always lead to you moving towards becoming more and more like Jesus, even though the culture will tell you otherwise. There was this one Berkeley study done uh, not too long ago trying to measure the amount of information out there because of the digital age we live in, okay? And so it's an older study, but it found out that as soon as the internet hit, ever since that point, information in the world has just doubled every year. So again, this is an old study, but it goes back to 2003, and it said in 2003, there were 24 billion gigabytes of data of information out there, Okay. So you do the math. We're in 2023. So if it doubles every year, think about that for a second. I don't even know what that number was. Like I was calculating it at home, like preparing the sermon. I was like, I don't even know how to say the sermon. So I'm just going to leave it up to you guys to figure that out. Okay. But like, sure enough, like, you know, the other night I was like doing this deep dive on YouTube into morning routines. Okay. Because Dallas right now, I'm trying to like get my morning routine right so I can be more productive and stuff like that. Right. So the amount of videos on YouTube on morning routines, it's ridiculous. Right. But I can know all the right things. I can know how like, okay, I need to drink salt with water before I drink coffee and delay my coffee into intake to be more productive. Or I need to work out for 30 minutes a day, cut out sugar, do all these things. Unless I apply those things, unless I put them into practice, nothing in my life is going to change. I'm not going to move towards health. That is what James is saying. You could do as many Bible studies as you want. You could do as many, you know, Bible in 30 day plans as you want. But unless you put it into practice, it's as if you looked yourself in the mirror, walked away, and forgot what you look like. But here's the beauty of church. Here's the beauty of us gathering in this moment. Anytime we come together like this on a Sunday is an opportunity for you to put what you know to be true of the gospel and what you read in the word of God into practice in the way you treat one another. That's the evidence of if you're progressing in Christ is how you treat one another. James, knowing this, continuing this theme into chapter two, says this in verse one of chapter two. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Must not show favoritism. If you're a believer, He's saying you must not show favoritism. So from the get-go, I want to make this point. I want you to note that this morning, James is talking to believers, to Christians, to followers of Jesus, to brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of that church back then in this Jewish community and part of the church today in this community here. So if you're exploring Christianity, you know, if you're skeptical, if you have your doubts, you know, I hope that you feel like you belong here before you believe. I hope that you feel like you belong in this place amongst this community. But James is not talking to you this morning. 
James is reprimanding and using this strong language, and it's directed at believers this morning, followers of Jesus. And the thing that you will find here quite quickly is that at first, even though it looks similar, right? It looks similar in a lot of ways. There's vast differences. There's vast differences in the culture back then but, and the culture nowadays. And I'm going to point those out in a couple of seconds to show you the vast differences so you understand what's happening. But what he is talking about, what he is calling out, is what I believe is one of the most insidious sins in the church today. It's lying there sometimes below the surface, going undetected, brooding, disintegrating the foundation of the church. A sin at times that I found in my own life when I've allowed the Holy Spirit to shine a light in the different areas of my heart. A sin that can sometimes be a silent killer when it comes to your progression into Christ-likeness. What is the sin that James is talking about, that we're talking about this morning? It's the sin of partiality. It's the sin of favoritism. James puts it like this in verse 4. He, he gives this idea of a discrimination. And what is discrimination? One pastor puts it like this. To discriminate simply means that we look at a person's outside, determine their worth on the inside. I'm going to say it again. Discrimination is to discriminate simply means that we look at a person's outside to determine their worth on the inside. James gives us a quick illustration, a quick example of this in verse 2. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. Here's a place of honor, if you will, right? In our culture, it might be the head of the table in the dining room, right? That's what he's talking about. But, he's, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit in the floor, sit on the floor at my feet, right? Usually maybe at your house where your dog sits, looking for scraps of food that you give him from the dining room table. That's what he's talking about. Some scholars say this might not exactly be happening in the church, but it gives a good enough illustration that you get that there's some truth to what James is saying. But again, the differences in that culture, one theologian puts it like this, okay? The world of James was different from ours in a number of fundamental ways. Three to be clear, okay? One, social standing was not nearly often a function of wealth in this world. There's other things other than wealth that gave you social standing. Maybe it was the, the family you were born into, your age, your gender. Two, there was almost no possibility of social or economic climbing in James's world. What do I mean? Well, three, the social and economic period in the Roman Empire was incredibly steep. There was no real middle class back then. Pretty much 8% of the population had wealth. Another 2% were gaining it. And the remaining 90% of the population in this culture were poor. So think about that. The irony that James is trying to point out here is that the poor in this community, in this culture, are giving special treatment to the rich 
Most of the people that James is talking to or writing this letter to are poor. So the issue is not so much the treatment that they give to the wealthy person. That's not the issue. Nor is the issue any hint that James is uh, believing that saying that, hey, if you want to be a member of this church, it's reserved for the materially poor. He's not saying that. The issue is an uneven quality of treatment for people that are rich compared to people that are poor. The way they treat each other is what he's talking about. They're giving high value to something in this Roman culture is given high value to. So get that. Something that in the Roman Empire they value that shouldn't be valued in the kingdom of God, it's working its way into the Christian community. That's what he's calling out. But to be very clear, money is not inherently evil, right? Of course not. But if it is used as a measure of personal worth, either consciously or unconsciously, then, only then, we have fallen prey to the standards of the culture around us. I said this before as we started this series. As humans, no matter what century you live in, we have a propensity to be molded by the culture around us. As I said last week, we're, we're like fish in water, right? Culture is the water that we swim in. And like a fish who doesn't recognize the water that it's in, sometimes we don't understand or we don't see that the culture around us is discipling us. The culture around us is molding us. The culture around us is presenting to us daily values that it is telling that we should also value as human beings. But at first glance, you know, reading this passage, I don't know about you, but it, it's easy to think there's no way that I would do this, right? There's no way that, bring it to our culture, like if someone walked in here with a Gucci on or a Louis Vuitton purse, and if you have any of those things, like there's no shame, there's, this is not, there's nothing wrong with those things. But say if someone walked in like with a Rolex, right? You get what I'm saying? And I gave them special treatment compared to a homeless person that walked through those doors, right? In my mind, thinking about that example, I'm like, okay, there's no way I would do that, right? You're probably thinking the same thing, right? There is no way I would give them preferential treatment. But like I do, every week that I prepare a sermon, I'm sitting in my study and I was like, okay, God, work this text through my life. Filter it, filter it through my life, my experience right now in this moment. And as I was sitting there, the Holy Spirit brought to mind how insidious this sin is and how it is present in my own life. Thinking back to a moment not too long ago uh, when I was a pastor in Ontario, it was this large church, okay? So 3,000 people. And like a lot of these mega churches, if you will, uh, they're, they're great because like sometimes uh, you can meet interesting people and what you find in places like this, these bigger churches, is this a lot of times you find actors or actresses or celebrities or musicians uh, find it comfortable to attend these type of churches because they can hide in the background. They can hide in the crowd, right? So this one church that I was pastoring at, uh, it was a typical Sunday. I was preaching on a Sunday. So I got up on stage. I preached a sermon. And after the sermon, you know, we sing a song in response. And what usually happens, like a, a lot of the times, which I love doing, is somebody will come up to me 
and the sermon touches them in a certain way and they will ask for prayer, which is one of my favorite things to do. Like prayer ministry is one of my favorite things to do. And so I'm waiting around in the front to pray for somebody or sometimes people come and ask me a question. But this one particular Sunday, as I was coming off stage, I noticed that there was this actor that I knew that was sitting in the third row. And after the service ended, we made eye contact. And I knew in that moment he wanted to talk to me. And the weird thing in retrospect, like going into the moment, the, what the Holy Spirit was bringing to mind as I was sitting in my study this week was, I kind of was ignoring everybody. Like I was like beelining it to him for no particular reason, knowing that he wanted to, to uh, talk to me. I was like giving him my full attention. Even so that in that moment, I remember that there was somebody that wanted to talk to me that I kind of brushed off and I acted as if like I was busy and on my way to do something, which was to talk to this person, right? And this, this actor, he came up to me and he was very kind and he encouraged me. He's like, hey, bro, you're a good communicator. I was like, oh, thank you, man. And we had this quick chat and that was it, okay? But in that moment, walking away, thank God for the Holy Spirit because he nudged me and this question popped into my head. It was like, why did the comment coming from this guy mean more to you, Ben, than the comment that you've heard before coming from a young adult or your wife or Deb, who was the HR director on staff there? Ben, why did it make or impact you more coming from this actor, coming from this celebrity, a person that our culture puts high value to a, per, a person in our culture that high, has high status, has high prestige. I sat with that question and I asked myself, could it be, could it be that the sin is present in my own life? And I know what you're thinking, Ben, uh, you're being too hard on yourself. No, I'm not. The whole point of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of sin. Why? Because sin dehumanizes you. Sin moves you away from the goal. The goal is to become like Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit, what he is doing, he is molding, he is shaping, he is transforming you. He's removing all the things that are inhibiting you from becoming like Jesus. And this sin, if you like it or not, is one that we are all susceptible to. It comes to life in the moment that someone walks into the church, you know, maybe with tattoos or uh, ear piercings or whatever, and you quickly make a judgment about them before you get to know them. Or let, let's switch it, because like most likely in our culture, right, we live in a church culture where it's, it's come as you are, right? And it's okay to wear whatever you would like to church, and that's a good thing, Okay. But this might or might not have happened to me. Maybe it's a guy that walks in with a three-piece suit to your church service. And right away, the thought pops into your head of, hey, look at this guy, like this pious, religious dude. Like, what is he doing wearing a three-piece suit to church? Like, doesn't he know you don't do that? You quickly make a judgment call, only to find out after service when talking to him that he's a new Christian, exploring Christianity, and he thought that to come to church, to the best of his knowledge, he thought you, you wore a suit. So that's what he did. It's those moments where, uh, be it 
a person of a different ethnicity or a, diff- a person of a, a different socioeconomic status or you, you come across somebody that has a different political view or a different religion and there's something inside of you that becomes suspicious. There's something inside of you that all of a sudden you want to separate yourself from them or quickly make a judgment call not knowing who they are. In the church nowadays, it looks as blatantly obvious as this. Some churches that I worked at, when it comes to their eldership board or their board in general, a high seat of, uh, of honor, a high seat of spiritual authority, all you see in those seats are rich businessmen. That's the insidiousness of this sin that we as humans have a propensity towards. And although the context in this chapter of James is the poor, in a wide sense, this is what he's talking about. The word favoritism in the, in the Greek, in the original language, as I said, can be translated as partiality. Literally, it means respecter of persons. Someone who treats people according to their status, their rank, their importance, their prestige. And when done in the church, James asks us all this question, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Continuing on in verse five, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, he's talking to us people, followers of Jesus, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. See, when we see this sin bear its ugly head inside of our own hearts and our lives, in the slightest way as Christians, as followers of Jesus, not only are we entertaining evil thoughts, meditations of our heart that cause us to sin, but first and foremost, what James is trying to remind us of over and over again as followers of Jesus throughout these last couple of verses is what initiates this type of behavior. Where it starts is when we forget what one pastor calls the gospel. When we become gospel amnesiacs, when we forget who we are, when we forget the message of the good news about Jesus, James is saying this over and over again. He's pointing, he's saying, saying, remember the good news about Jesus. He says it in verse one in this way. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. He's like, church, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ right? Jesus, the the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of the divine in Jesus, God is revealed. He is the object of our faith is what James is pointing to you. Didn't the very manifestation of God decide to identify with the poor and the outcasts? Paul says it like this in Philippians 2, 6, 8, who being in the very nature God, did not count, consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself poor. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. James is trying to get us to remember. He's saying, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget what won you over. Don't forget who you really are before you met Christ. He says it again. Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? James right now, he's echoing the words of Jesus found in Matthew 5, 3, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. One local pastor, Daryl Johnson, he puts it like this, to be poor in spirit are those who know they have nothing with which to get the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are those who come totally at the mercy of the kingdom giver. Surprise. If that's you, yours is the glorious kingdom of heaven. As followers of Jesus, wasn't that us? Wasn't that you? Wasn't that me? I was poor in spirit. I had nothing to offer the God of the universe, but yet because of his grace, because of his mercy that triumphs over judgment, even in the midst of my sin, he offered me the gift of eternal life. He offered me a way to become a child of God. He saved me from the destitution that I found myself in. That's why we are blessed to be blessed. Uh, We are blessed to be poor, to have this attitude, to have this understanding is to be blessed. Why? Because it's the resultant of this attitude to poor, to be poor, to understand this uh, is to know you need help. The poor know they need God. They live depending on God. The poor have only one hope. Their whole existence hangs on God and God alone. Daryl Johnson, again, says it like this. This is interesting. In the Bible, the opposite of poor isn't rich. He says the opposite of poor in the Bible is violent. Those who take their lives into their own hands. But isn't to follow Jesus to surrender your life into his hands. The hands of Jesus that were spread across the cross that were pierced for your and mine transgressions, changing our status from poor to holy, from poor to righteous, from poor to blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, to poor to whole. Jesus is what it means to be truly human. See, the only way you kill the sin of favoritism in your life is remembering that God is no respecter of persons. Thank God he did not show favoritism or partiality when it comes to me and you. Peter put it like this in Acts 10, 34, when talking about the gospel moving its way from the Jews to the Gentiles. He said, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, 
the one who fears him and does what is right. Remembering that, looking into the mirror of God's word and not forgetting what you look like, that's where the power is. Looking into God's word and understanding and remembering the gospel, that is the power. The gospel is the power to kill that sin in your life. The gospel is the only power that will change your life, that actually leads to lasting transformation. But when we look into the mirror of God's word, what we see is Jesus, who you're called to be, who you truly are. Are what it truly means to be human. And in that mirror, not only do you see Jesus, but you see who you are called to reflect when you live your life out in this world amongst those that are far away from God, amongst those that like you are poor, who are broken, who are hurting, who are looking for hope. So we, as we pray as we end this morning. Here's the application. It's really simple. As James said it over and over again, it's to listen. It's to listen. Listen in the, the original language means more to just hear some words, but actually means to not only take those words that you hear and just process them in your mind, but put them into action. Listen can be known uh, to operate in three ways. It, it calls for your attention. It calls for your absorption, but it also calls for your action. And so as we move into this next song, as we move into this moment of prayer, I know that I can't stand up you and convict you of whatever is going on in your life. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can do that. So what we're going to do is we're just going to create a space in the next couple moments. We're going to sing that song that we sang before the sermon again, hoping that you can listen to those words and maybe even make it your own prayer this morning. If God's working in your life in a certain way, if God's bringing to mind maybe this sin or other sins that you need to repent of, that you need to give to him, sins that are dehumanizing you, sins that are disintegrating who he has called you to be, So let's do that together this morning.